Women Today, brought to you by CityWing.com for your next flight away. Hello and welcome to the Women's Day podcast. This week we've heard what it's like to raise a child with Down syndrome. We've discussed flowery language in schools and met the new chief executive of the Isle of Man's Children's Centre. But first, let's begin by talking about graphic novels. Are superhero stories sexist? Well, earlier this week, the supermodel Cara Delevingne made headlines by stating that they are. She told Empire magazine that superhero movies are totally sexist. Female superheroes are normally naked in bikinis. No one will be able to fight like that. So could the same be said then for comic books? Well, Kate has been speaking to a self-confessed comic fanatic, Kim Holland, no relation, who has been reading them for as long as he can remember. And he told Kate they're certainly more than just picture books. They can tell political stories. They can talk about bureaucracy. They can talk about things that are happening in the world today, but they can change them, rewrite them and make them more palatable for us. Well, let's talk a little bit about how women are portrayed in them because I think when I think about women in comic books, my mind, first of all, goes to Wonder Woman and then it goes, to be (laughs) completely blunt with you, to Wonder Woman in very little clothing with Mm -hmm. her cleavage on show. Do you think that's fair? I don't know. I don't know if it's fair. I think it's just the way she was drawn originally. I think you look back at the history of comic books it was a predominantly male pastime so they were drawing images for young males to look at to be entertained by and to sort of fulfill a fantasy a little bit like pornography kind of i suppose do you think it's changed over the years though to a certain degree but it's still there you still see this odd depiction of women you know they have overly large breasts the per- you know, they have the perfect body almost too perfect i don't believe you can sort of look at a comic book image and say this is what i should be trying to achieve because let's face it it's a cartoon it's a comic it can't be achieved it's drawn it's like trying to it's it's almost like trying to say i wish i was mickey mouse no amount of plastic surgery can turn you into mickey mouse you could try but you'd never be mickey but they are getting and becoming more and more realistic the graphics are incredibly realistic in some of them and yet as you say these women are portrayed with the in inverted commas the perfect body do you not think that creates a sort of sense of ideal? I'm not sure. I mean, you look at the statistics nowadays, out of the comic books that are bought, nearly 50% are bought by women, which to me is is amazing, because I thought it was only guys who read comic books. So is it... I, I mean, surely if this was offensive to women, they would stop buying and they would start boycotting, but it seems to be the opposite way around. So I'm not entirely sure. If you picked up a comic book and the female character and let's say she's not just there to be the pretty sidekick Mm -hmm. she's she's a real character in the story and she was dressed almost like i am today in jeans and a jumper would you be as interested in buying that comic i'm not sure i'd it would to me it would it would depend on who wrote the story who drew the who is the artist that's one of my main pulls when when i'm when i'm buying comics it's a very visual medium so if she was wearing a jumper and a pair of jeans and I don't know a, I don't know a pair of Ugg boots, let's say, um, then yeah, it all depends on I suppose what I'd be intrigued to know what her power was. What what 
what's she, what's she hiding? Why has she not got it all on show like everybody else? Why every other character has this all on show? Why is she hiding this away? So I don't know. It would be an interesting. Maybe that's an interesting way. We'll go forward and we'll we'll speak to Marvel and say, hey, come on, <laughs> let, let's let, let's do the let's do the girl next door properly. And, and it's not enough turtlenecks in comic books. <laughs> but it's it's interesting you mentioned power because these women in a lot of them, and I've got one of your um, your graphic novels in front of me <laughs> that uh, is called the RAT Queens. And they are incredibly powerful women, incredibly powerful characters who really drive a story and, you know, kicking butt. Oh, yeah. And yet they're doing it in five-inch heels, which to me, more than anything, just seems impractical. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Do you think their power comes from their clothing for the fact that they do get it all out and show off what they've got possibly but i think may i think at the end of the day again I'll, I'll go back to the fact this is it's fantasy these girls don't exist they can work they can run around in 15 inch heels they could wear nothing but shells and they could still for me it wouldn't be titillation i'm still enjoying the writing the artwork and, and the fact that these girls really do like to kick a lot of behind. <laughs> There's a, a, a line on the back of the blurb in this that just makes me laugh. <laughs> these women know how to party. They swear, experiment with drugs, talk openly about their sexual misadventures. Oh, and they beat the living out of everyone in sight. Think sex in the city meets Lord of the Rings. Yes, it's weird. And yes, it's awesome. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with that one. I, I kind of wish that I'd wrote that as a, as a little bit of a thing on the back of their book there, but totally amazing. But there are campaigns to, to demonstrate the sexism in comics, the intrinsic yeah. sexist nature of them. And of course, this week we've heard Cara Delevingne say that she thinks there need to be more kind of female superheroes. Oh, I agree, And definitely. it's sexist. And there's also um, something called the Hawkeye Initiative. I was wondering <laughs> if you can explain that. The Hawkeye Initiative is... Uh... It's kind of an internet movement that it started as almost an internet meme and then gathered pace and gathered pace. And basically what they're doing is they're taking front covers or panels from comics which feature these scantily clad, super perfect women. And they're then copying the poses that they're in and transferring them to male superhero characters. So, for example, you'll have the Hulk <laughs> striking a pose... Um, like a like a female character um there's a great one of the recent or the first avengers movie with all of the avengers all the male characters in the poster are facing the camera looking macho looking gruff and the only character with their back showing their behind and looking rather seductive is black widow the female character so the hawkeye initiative spun this and had every male character copying the female character's pose and the one female character copying the male character's pose it's it's very eye-opening and uh, yeah <laughs> very interesting the thing i found really interesting about it is it actually sometimes shows how these positions the women are drawn in are actually physically impossible, it's impossible yeah yeah it's crazy it really is it's it's crazy and it's, it's very eye-opening and i think it's you know it it's it's good for people to look at this and you know, have a laugh. We're not laughing at how the women are portrayed, but it does bring to light just how ridiculous some of these images are. So, yeah, the Hawkeye Initiative. <laughs> Since thinking about the way women are portrayed in comic books, has it changed how you're looking at them personally? Kind of. Especially knowing I was coming up to do this interview, yeah. I've started looking at my collection and I've started noticing that... 
it doesn't necessarily have to be a human. It can be any species. It can be an animal. It can be alien. They, the the female of the species is treated or depicted in a slightly different way to the males. So it's I don't want to say the word it's sexualized, but it's it's definitely different. So yeah, it's been eye it's it's definitely been eye opening just looking into this. I'm so sorry. I've just noticed the subtitle of this is on. Volume One. Sass and sorcery. Oh, yes. (laughs) Is the way we teach English in our schools harmful to children's creative writing? Well, a group of acclaimed children's authors think so. They believe that the tendency for primary school teachers to steer children's creative language towards too elaborate, flowery and over-complex words is very damaging. Now, they say that children are taught not to use simple words such as good, bad, small or big, but to always find more interesting words to replace them. So things like wonderful, <clears throat> terrible, minuscule or enormous. Cecilia Busby, who writes the fantasy adventures for children as C.J. Busby, is spearheading this protest. And she says teaching assistants are constantly asking children, can you think of a longer word? And it's resulting in what she calls awful flowery language. Now, the authors uh, behind this campaign are also saying that we risk producing a generation of children who believe that a sentence such as I bounded excitedly from my cramped wooden seat and flung my arm gracefully up like a bird soaring into the sky is always better than I stood and put my hand up. So this afternoon then, what do you think? Are we overstressing the importance of flowery language and damaging our children's creative writing in the process? Joe. Yes, I think um, damaging is maybe not the right phrase. I don't think... Too um, strong a word? Too strong too a flowery. word. Not sure I understand the meaning of it. <laughs> um, I do feel that children need to have a basic of language to be able to um, put down exactly what they mean and what they with what they understand into, obviously, creative writing. And if we suddenly start wanting them to use much bigger and much longer words, are they actually going to get to grip with knowing where to put them properly into sentences? I don't know. I think that, um, I mean, I speak from a parent that has a son and a daughter that reads very well. So maybe it's a difficult one. Obviously, if you have a child that doesn't read so great, but when they're reading, I think that they're learning such an amazing amount of vocabulary anyway. So the emphasis should be on reading more, I would say. But if we don't encourage children to use bigger, longer, more complicated words, then surely they're never going to. I don't think there's anything wrong with like understanding what a metaphor is or knowing how to use a simile correctly. I don't think that's what anyone's saying. But I just think sometimes something is fine. It's fine. Just say it's fine. You don't need to always use the most elaborate or... or to use that phrase again, flowery language to express something. And it is, like Joe says, more important that you can express yourself eloquently and correctly, surely. Very nicely yeah, said. Very nicely said. Um, but I, I just think we, t- we again talk so often about how language is developing and evolving. So, what do we want? A group of children who can only talk in text speak? Again, I don't think that's what anyone's saying, is it? It's just about knowing how to use words correctly. And I don't think there's any reason to say that sometimes using a long word means that you are therefore more intelligent or it's more impressive because sometimes it is just about the actual meaning behind the words surely i know because i mean there's many adults that try and use flowery language and you're kind of thinking is that really in the right context i just feel that i mean text speak i smiled when you said that because i think that's going completely the other way i don't think we should be encouraging it's a slippery that slope. at all it's a slippery yeah, slope i don't though. think we're going there i really don't think we're going there um, you know gr8 is great um, but I do feel that children, I mean, you know, we never had to use it. And I think we can portray ourselves quite well. Well, 
you know, speak for yourself, maybe. But I think as you get older, you naturally tend to use bigger words anyway. I think it's what naturally mm, I, starts to happen. No, I think you do that if you learn it at a younger age. And, and you, you mentioned, Joe at the beginning, you know, we should encourage children to read more. Absolutely. But if you have children reading more and they come across words that they don't understand, then, you know, that's that's not great. But then it? if you have children who are simply looking up a perfectly okay word in a thesaurus to find something that, you know, has a similar meaning and then using it incorrectly, surely that's worse. That takes me back to school. I did that so many times. The thesaurus was like my, oh, right-hand man. It was like literally there. And I just put words in just to make sure that I wasn't using the same word all the time. And I, a lot of the time, didn't know what the actual word and I got marked down for it. At university, I developed a real talent to be able to say everything in 40 or 50 words instead of six just so you get to the word count a lot quicker. I uh, had a text in from Anne who says, the English language has been dumbed down enough. Children need to learn uh, more uh, language, not less. Totally agree, uh, disagree with the author's viewpoint. Fran, I'm really interested in your thoughts on this. Uh, say we've, you've got um, five children. What do you think? Um, well, my, my children were all very avid readers. Um, they have very good language skills, uh, apart from Elizabeth, who, who really was never much of a reader and her imagination is not great. But the language they use and the metaphors they use and the metaphors we teach in school now, I suppose we do use them in everyday language. We use things like I'm tied up at the moment. You know, I'll keep an eye on you, out for you, raining cats and dogs. Obviously, with my learning disability hat on, that can be very confusing for children who have autism or who are on Asperger's or who are on the spectrum. Those kind of literal meanings and the metaphors that we use can be very confusing. So I would have to hold fire on any debate on that one. There's a campaign, I don't know if you guys have heard about this, it's called the Plain English Campaign. It has been going since 1979 and they've been campaigning against gobbledygook jargon and misleading public information. They really try to get, I don't know, letters from the bank or um, insurance companies and and put it in words that everybody can understand. I think that's a really important point. I'm not sure I'd go quite as far as the Plain English Campaign do sometimes, but you do need things to be written as you say, Fran, as well, in a way that can be understood in a literal sense sometimes. This is what we were talking about not that long ago when we were talking about politics and I was saying about jargon, isn't it? It needs to be used on a, on a level of understanding that we can all understand. I mean, I've had lawyers' letters and I have to get my dad to read them to kind of make sense of them to me and say, well, actually, what does that actually mean? Because it is like just word upon word upon word and it could just be narrowed down to one simple sentence. I think it's important to say, though, I, I do think there is a time and a place for flower, flowery language and elaborate language, because sometimes, you know, you read poetry or you read plays or you read a book, and sometimes it is the phrasing and the way that words are put together that makes it beautiful. So I do think there's a place, but there, surely understanding and, and comprehension is, is more important. Well, yeah, I just think we are at risk of just losing those those bigger, the, the more flowery language. I wish we could think of another word for that. I might have to get the thesaurus out. We um, are talking about children, though, don't forget. We're not talking about adults. I that's think where we're it talking starts, about, though, isn't well, it? Well, of course it is, but I think it needs to develop on a yearly basis, depending on the age of the child. Okay, well, we don't agree, do you? Let us know your thoughts on uh, flowery language. Should we encourage children to use more complicated words, or should it just be... I don't know, dumbed down a bit, but, you know, don't be swayed by my opinion.
We've spoken a lot on this programme about the emotional problems that teenagers are facing in our modern age and it's clearly something of a concern for education staff here because last week they attended an award-winning course on emotional first aid. Now 11 people from all five of the Department of Education Children's Secondary Schools, the Youth Service, Services for Children and Education Support Centre went along and earlier today Kate caught up with Ramsey Grammar School teacher Josie Corrin to find out what she'd taken away from the course but first, here's Youth Officer Grania Burns. What we have recognised, um, all of us who work with children and young people, um, that over the last few years, there's a perception that young people aren't coping as um, with average everyday angsts as they may have done in the past. And the services, very specific services and expensive services at the top end of the scale are becoming blocked with probably young people who don't meet their criteria. And... Emotional first aid is something about skilling up and enabling the staff on the ground. So it's kind of frontline staff, staff who kids have a relationship with. So the young people come into contact perhaps on a day-to-day basis in a school or at youth club or in even in a health setting, but that they have a, a relationship with, and I think that's the key part. Josie, is that something you see? I mean, you're the head of Key Stage 4 at Ramsey Grammar School. Do you see that young people are not perhaps coping as well as you'd hope them to? Yeah, I mean, I certainly believe I wouldn't be a teenager again with the likes of social media, for example. It's a massive, massive issue. Um, it's, they've just had exams. We've had a, about a dozen students who have not been on any radar but have struggled with the stress and anxiety of it, really. So definitely... Definitely, definitely. Anything that can be put in there to support students is fantastic. And you say it's not necessarily the students at the ends of the spectrum. It's those in the middle that perhaps go unnoticed when it comes to emotional difficulties. Definitely. I mean, children deal with things fantastically in school. Some students will come and let you know. Some parents will let you know. Some don't say anything. So it's looking for signs. And students will talk to anybody who they've got a relationship with. So it may be in school, out of school. And if they've got an issue, they are very good at just letting you know. Some students who aren't, who don't talk... This course gave us loads of signs that we can pick up on to then maybe just take them to the side and ask them if they're okay. What kind of signs? Just if they're not attending school, if they've missed a day, if they've gone very quiet, just lots of different, if they're just not their normal self, really. Form tutors see them every day. So a big thing for me would personally hope that form tutors want to take part in this emotional first aid just to give them and the skills needed to support students in school. So, Gronja, talk me through the training. Who was there? Who was it taken by? The training is run by Solent NHS, and Emotional First Aid is is a a training package that they have developed, and they have trained now 321 cohorts around England, Wales, and and the Isle of Man. And it is run by um, Stuart Gemmell, who is a senior manager in the CAMS team of the Children and mental health service over in Southampton and Paul Jetton. These people have come through that field and have dealt with all that kind of emotional distress faced by young people and said we need to be skilling up staff on the front line and people on the ground who have relationships with young people and, and have come up with this course. What did you take away from it? I took away that relationships with young people is key, that young people don't ask for somebody's CV when they want to talk to them. That, that 
it's not about the hierarchy or who you are in a position, but if you've got that relationship with the young person, that is the most important thing. Um, I also took away that emotional distress is normal, and at some stage in all of our lives, we will suffer some elements of emotional distress. It, it, and we, we talked an awful lot about anxiety and about how anxiety is, is all about the perception of what might happen. But that it, that's a normal kind of feeling. Um, but we also talked quite a lot about stress and the fact that stress can actually kill. Josie, do you feel more confident now, I suppose, with your, with your students? Yeah, I mean, I do, I, I do think we talked a lot of the fantastic work that is going on already in schools, in youth work, everywhere. There's some fantastic work going on with students. Students know we're here to support them. But things I got out of it were the idea of concepts of stuckness, where students and adults, we can just get into the idea of just be feeling stuck and not knowing how to make that solution so it's it, that I got out of it and also the scotoma if day's going to be bad it's going to be bad no matter what so it's all just things for me just more and more assemblies about life's great you know you've got the world as your oyster and just about everything doesn't have to be bad there is so much goodness going on and I think uh, to be honest I found it really really positive and reaffirmed why I'm in this job to be honest with you. That's Youth Officer Grania Burns and our um, Ramsey Grammar School teacher Josie Corrin speaking to Kate there about emotional first aid training. Uh, we're joined today by Fiona Dawson, Chief Executive of the Children's Centre. wonder, listening to that, uh, Fiona, just what you make of a course that really focuses on, on the difficulties that young people face nowadays. I think anything that brings attention and highlights and supports that issue um, is tremendous. Um, it, and one point that was made there was just asking, are you OK? Are things OK? And it's amazing just by actually taking that time out and listening really carefully to how the, the response comes through is absolutely vital. It's a very simple thing to do, but it can actually make a huge difference to someone. I think it's really exciting that this course and this training is going to be rolled out and how many other people are going to be trained in this really, what I think is so important when it comes to being a young person or a teenager in the modern society. So I think it's just fantastic that more and more people are going to be trained to, to look out for those signs. This is Women's Day on Manx Radio with me, Beth Espy, Kate Holland and Joe Pack. And our guest this afternoon is the newly appointed Chief Executive of the Children's Centre, Fiona Dawson. Uh, in the introduction, Fiona, I did say that the Children's Centre was probably one of the best known charities here in the Isle of Man. Is it really 148 years old? It is. We'll be 150 in a couple of years' time. And what was the sort of the origins of it? What do you know about that? Well, one thing I was really surprised to learn and quite proud of that it was actually started by a Scotsman. Um, which I, I don't get very popular for saying that around the office. Um, <laughs> but it was actually, it was uh, the first children's home is where the roots are. And obviously it's grown immensely since then. I wonder what you think is the real need for an organisation like the Children's Centre in 2015? I think it's, it's maybe about thinking where we would be if we didn't have an organisation like the Children's Centre. Um, if you use the nursery or our contact centre, um, the farm and the Mobex activities that we provide for other charitable and community groups, um, not only would there be a lot of people not helped, but if other agencies had to step in and provide these services independently, I think it would cost us all a lot more money to do so. I mean, you've just given us a couple of examples of some of the things that the Children's Centre does and, and many people might not know actually the extent of, of what the charity is involved in. Could you just give us a, a brief overview of the things that you do? 
surely. It's it's not an easy question to answer. Our best estimates show that we reach possibly over 40% of the island's children across all of our services. Some of the things we offer range from nursery provision, after school clubs, out to play, um, through to school and charity groups that use our Mobex outdoor learning, the community farm, and we also offer fostering, adoption and some family support services on behalf of government through to all the charitable support activities that we do. I mean, it really is incredibly wide and varied. I mean, how does that help or hinder you, I guess, in some ways? There's so many things to be involved in. Certainly from before I joined the organisation, I would pass by the Children's Centre on Woodburn Road and think that was the Children's Centre. And it's actually a a whole host of island-wide activities, but it's very difficult to actually tell the story about what we do. And a lot of our charitable services are confidential for obvious reasons but it's really difficult to go out and get the funding to support these and keep them going when you can't it's it's more difficult to tell the story about these you mentioned funding um and i think it's it's probably fair to say there is a belief that the children's center is one of the richest charities it's sitting on rather hefty reserves is that true i certainly wish it was Um, There's often a preconception about all charities that they're incredibly well funded or we fritter money on administration. I think we need to knock both of these assumptions on the head. It does cost money to run an organisation like the Children's Centre. We do need administration and management. Um, And importantly, we actually have to keep some reserve to be able to continue these services should our charitable funding be lost or withdrawn or end naturally. Some of the the people we deal with are are vulnerable and we can't just say in a couple of weeks that support, that service, that help for you is going to be withdrawn. We we need to be able to continue these services for at least a few months and that's certainly what our reserves are calculated on. They're there to actually deliver and support these services for a few months till we can actually transfer or wind them down if, if we had to do that. The fundraising activities of the Children's Centre are incredibly high profile. They do loads and loads of different things. So from what you're saying, um, that's an incredibly vital part of the charity's work. Absolutely. We've got some tremendous um, supporters with organisations and individuals. Um, But we certainly don't have a stockpile of cash. All the money we're raising goes to specific projects that we're already running or we're trying to set up. It hasn't been a particularly easy time for the Children's Centre in, in recent months and years. Um, it was well publicised that some government contracts were lost. I, I think in, in any environment, you know, you, you win some contracts and you, you don't win others. Um, it's very much about focusing on the everyday, what we do do at the moment, and looking forward into the future. Um, there's lots more coming along. We've just started at Laxey Pavilion, which we're trying to open up to the whole community. Um, so Noah's opened there at the weekend and we've got the room now available to hold functions. Uh, so it, it's certainly onward and focusing on the future and our growth and development. Does that go back to what you were saying about it needing to be run almost in a business-like way in, in terms of when you do lose out on contracts? Mm-hmm. I think we always make a a very informed decision about do we actually want to go for certain contracts? Are they the right ones that fit with our mission, what we're here to do? And do they fit with all the other services uh, so they don't overlap? And we're certainly responding to the demand and the need that we see in the community. Uh, So we we do keep changing that. It's very disappointing if you don't go for a contract, as anyone who ever has 
done that knows but some you'll win some you'll some you won't the main thing is that you look forward and you change as you need to change having government contracts though i think would give a charity i don't know a certain amount of kudos almost and i wonder what the impact on staff morale i know you weren't there actually at the time that it happened but looking at your staff now what the impact has been on them because of, of the loss of those government contracts hugely disappointing they're obviously working um, with individuals on a daily basis but they're they're so professional and so focused on whatever they are working on that they'll be delivered to an extremely high standard we're constantly looking at new learning best practice what can we bring to the island to support the young people and the children and the families and that there is never a slow moment Uh, So it's very much about taking away as much uncertainty as we can and focusing on where we're going. Um, We're heading towards our 150th anniversary and there's a lot more to do. What about the effect on the public perception of the charity? I I would like to think that uh, our support is so strong and people touch all different parts of this organisation um, it's it's about seeing what we are doing and where we can benefit them and absolutely responding. And we just thank them for their support every day. They're absolutely tremendous. OK, well, let's talk about your role specifically then. You are the new chief executive. How do you how do you see your role? What do you do on a day to day basis? I think a lot of people would ask that, actually. Um, <laughs> for the first three months, it was very much about coming in and meeting people. And as I said earlier, it's about listening and being very willing to learn. It is a different sector for me, um, but my aim is to bring all the, the experience from the rules I have had and use that for the benefit of taking the charity forward. On a day-to-day basis, it's it's working with individuals and teams and obviously agreeing what the strategy is, reviewing um, what what we do on a day-to-day basis and making as sure it's as effective and responsive as we can. Did you have to make many staff changes when you came in or did you kind of work in quite softly? We haven't really made any staff changes. It's been about learning very much and understanding what the teams need to do, um, where I can best support them, and then working out really what's best for the Children's Centre as a whole. There's so many diverse parts of it, but it's really about how we all come together and keep that ethos of what this whole charity is about. You're obviously in a a managerial position, I suppose, but do you actually have much hands-on work with the children? Do you do much in terms of the the play or the farm or whatever it is? Um, I don't on a day-to-day basis, but I've certainly been out and visited out to play and got well and truly soaked, which is, (laughs) I think, just part of your induction in the children's centre. And I, I would really recommend out to play to anyone. They're tremendous days and it's just fantastic to to really go out and see what it's all about. And it is important that I go out every week and I have time in my diary that I do go out and visit all the services and really try and see it from a user's point of view as much as that's possible. And really just keep in mind when we are looking at decisions and strategy that we keep going back to the reality of what our staff um, do every day and what our users need from us on all the different range of services. I mean, we've talked about your, your business background and how important that is in keeping the charity going in, in a straight line going forward. I really feel I should ask you at this point, do you like children? I do love children, yeah. <laughs> I think I really don't think you could come into this job and say you don't like children. I don't think I've met anyone that says they don't like children. It's, uh, it's, oh, it's I such... I've <laughs> met a few. 
Um, it's just it's so diverse I have to say coming from previous roles and in my first week I was on the farm I was out to play getting soaked there's just and I just I remember going home at the end of that first week and thinking gosh it is different isn't it but I love it love it you mentioned out to play there and there was um, interesting changes to the guidelines about um, how the children's centre could hold those sessions now for people who who may not be familiar with it it's uh, the uh, sessions run during the school holidays at various places around the island where um, until fairly recently you could leave your child there on the understanding that they were not the responsibility of the children's centre that's been changed now and children under the age of eight need to have parental supervision how Difficult is it to keep schemes like that going in a time when health and safety is, is so prevalent? I mean, is it even worth it? Oh, absolutely. Yes, I think the the benefit. Anyone who's come to out to play will see the benefit and feel the benefit. Um, although the the parents of the younger children maybe have to be there, they're not actually involved in the play as such. It actually is an opportunity for them to sit on the the sideline, have a chat, have a relax, and just watch their children having such imaginative fun. Because there are no guidelines. The the equipment's all put up. The the items to play with are there. Um, our staff are there to support but basically this is about free time to go and just really enjoy and what we said earlier about getting back to just free form play it's not structured you're not told what to do just go and have some fun no matter what the weather I believe absolutely weather is nothing to do with what we do Fiona what do you see as the future for the children's centre then two years till the 150th anniversary I mean do you want something big to happen before then We've certainly started planning for our 150th anniversary. It's a great target for staff and all our supporters to focus on. And yes, we do have lots of developments behind the scenes. But I think I'd just like to use it as a huge opportunity for people to realise some of the services that we offer. There's so much that I think other people could access. It's just actually knowing about it. And I'm trying really hard to tell the story of all the different aspects of this organisation because it's tremendous. And I, you know, like me, before I joined, I'd heard of the Children's Centre and I knew parts of it. But I think if we can start to roll out the story of everything it does and the tremendous people and professionalism and fun that can be had there too, um, that's a terrific thing to be able to do. It is one of the most common chromosome abnormalities in human beings and it affects around one in a thousand babies born every year. This afternoon we are talking about Down syndrome and are joined live in the studio by Fran Tinkler whose youngest daughter has got the condition. Now Fran thank you so much for being our guest this afternoon. Um, Elizabeth was born back in 1996. When did you first realise there was something wrong with her? Elizabeth, as soon as she was born, I think it was apparent that she wasn't very well. She was very blue. Um, and I suppose within half an hour or so, um, a paediatrician came to speak to me to tell me that he thought she had Down syndrome. So we knew pretty much straight away. But our biggest concern was her her heart. She, you know, She was very blue. She needed to go into a baby care unit immediately. Um, so that kind of override, overrode any concerns we had around her Down syndrome at that time. It wasn't until later, really, I suppose, we started to process the fact that she had a learning difficulty. And I felt very lucky because her learning disability was very easily visible immediately and that there was much, much research done on Down syndrome and we knew an awful lot about Down syndrome um, so, yeah, I felt very lucky from that point of view. Now, you mentioned the fact that 
her having Down syndrome really took second place to the fact she had other medical conditions and she had to have surgery at just eight weeks old. She did, yeah. Having had four other healthy children, Mm. normal birth deliveries, what's it like having to go through that? It was very difficult on many levels, really, because her she was very unwell for those eight weeks. So it was a really concerning time. Um, she she was in and out of hospital here and she was in Alderhay then for for two weeks. Um, and then when we went to cross. So I had four children here. Obviously, I, I was on the island about 10 years at that time, but we didn't have a big family network to support us. So um, child care was concerning. My husband couldn't spend a lot of time across with us, with me. Um, but we were very lucky with the support that we got. Once um, she had her surgery, um, she didn't look back, really. She thrived. She did really well. Um, and yeah, apart from other, you know, she developed some other health conditions which are associated with Downs and one or two that aren't associated with Downs. She has a really good quality of life and her health issues are managed very, very well on island and off island. Now, during pregnancy now, you are off the chance to be screened to see if your baby is likely to have Down syndrome. We're only talking 19 years ago. Mm. What sort of screening options were there for you, Fran? Um, I think they did blood screening at the time and I I can't remember to be honest I possibly was offered an amnio I don't remember I wouldn't have gone for an amnio with the risks associated with it because for me um, having a child with a disability was no different than having a child without a disability it was a child and my child so it wouldn't have made any difference to me So if you'd found out during pregnancy you wouldn't have considered terminating the pregnancy at any point? No, not at all Um, No, I would have liked to have known only for the fact that I would have been more prepared, possibly, uh, that the shock wouldn't have been as big and I'd have been more informed. It was a real learning curve, a huge learning curve, um, despite her health. Uh, And we had good support. We had good support. We had visitors very much immediately from the Down Syndrome Support Group on Ireland. But yes, I would have liked to have known earlier. What about friends and family? How did they react to it? Very mixed. We have a very different circle of friends now, apart from one or two very close friends that we had at the time and we seem to have moved away and and formed new relationships and new friendships Um, I think people find it very difficult to incorporate a child with learning disabilities sometimes into a social scene particularly when they don't behave as you expect them to behave they don't communicate other children find them difficult It, it it was a difficult time when she was smaller but family most of my family live in Ireland so we don't see a great deal of them. And as she's got older, we see more now. Um, and that's lovely. That's really nice. She's very much a valued family member now. Do you know, Fran, we've heard from people on this programme who have children who may look physically different for whatever reason, medical conditions or, or whatever. And sometimes they've said that they've had to deal with the most appalling comments from members of the public. And I wonder if you've had any experience of this. Absolutely true. If I had a fiver for every time I've heard things like, oh, they're so lovable or oh, they love music, or oh, you'll have a baby all your life. I, could, I would be a millionaire, I'm sure. But you, you just, it's just, they don't understand. They don't see the person for who they are. They see the syndrome. They see the disability. And it's the same with all learning disabilities for people who look different and behave differently. You know, people don't understand. They're frightened of it. And it's difficult to accept. I think as a society, we've got hugely more accepting. Um, and they're incorporated much more, which is wonderful. It's interesting because it is one of the more common conditions. It's obviously very obvious physically when somebody does have Down syndrome. But just outline for us, Fran, what it means medically. What are the other issues that are cons- uh, that are associated with Down syndrome? Well, there are many, many conditions associated with Down syndrome. There's 
diabetes, there's thyroid problems. The heart condition is, is a significant one often. Um, Elizabeth also presented with Perthes disease, which is a disease in, in her hips. Um, their immune systems tend to be a bit lower. Managing their health care is a little bit more difficult. Um, and recently we've taken over from the UK. We've uh, had Stuart Mills, I know he's been on your programme, to give a talk to our GPs. And he also spoke to parents and carers on the evening of that day about some of the medical health issues and on how we can deal with that. And it's interesting because the lifespan um, has increased now. You know, in the 1970s, it was 30. Um, the life expectancy now is 60, 50 to 60, which is wonderful. So, and that's down to better medical care, better expectations and better strategies put in place for dealing with people with Down syndrome. From a mother's point of view, what is the biggest hurdle, I guess, of raising a child with Down syndrome? I think for us the biggest hurdle has been the lack of expectation in every field. That really has been uh, very difficult for us to cope with. We have high expectations for Elizabeth and her achievements in life. She has high ex- she has high expectations of what she wants to do. She's very stubborn. Um, she's very able, despite her disabilities. Uh, so that for us has been the hardest thing to deal with. You have got four other children, as mm-hmm. I mentioned. They were all older at the, at the time she was born. How have they coped with it? Um, incredibly well. There's never been an issue. They've coped with whatever Elizabeth has thrown at us um, as, as, as normally as they don't see it as different or abnormal or they see her as Elizabeth, who has her difficulties, but who's the best fun ever and who keeps us all on our toes all the time. Now, um, sport has always been um, yes. an incredibly important part of your life. And Elizabeth, just tell us about that. Oh, well, Elizabeth's very, very lucky, as all the people who live on the Isle of Man with special needs are, in being able to be a part of the Special Olympics, which is the most wonderful organisation. She does bocce, she plays badminton, she does a keep fit class. Um, so she's very, very busy. And it has boosted her self-esteem enormously. It keeps her fit her weight is manageable because people with Down syndrome often have very significant weight issues and dietary wise they need 25% less calories than you and I do but in in fact what we tend to do is overfeed them and they don't always know when to stop eating so that's a significant issue for us particularly with her heart and her hips so the Special Olympics yeah the people give up there's no government funding for Special Olympics um, so people give up their free time and they're off to Los Angeles now in July she went to Belgium last year with them and did her bocce. And when she came home, her self-esteem was so high and she was so proud of her achievements. Now, Fran, you were 38 when you had Elizabeth. Um, I think many people associate Down syndrome with older mothers. I mean, I wouldn't particularly class 38 as an older mother, but in terms of, of risk factors of people who are, are more likely to have a baby with Down syndrome, what have you learned about that over the past years? I think it doesn't necessarily follow. I think screening is offered to people over... I don't know whether they're offering it to younger mums now, um, but the screening in the way that they used to do it was offered only to over 35s. So there used to be a, a field of thought that... Um, they were more at risk. But in actual fact, when I certainly when I was in Alder Hay with Elizabeth, um, she was, I was by far the oldest mother on the ward. You know, everybody else was in their early 20s, mid-20s, late 20s. So I don't know the st- statistics on the older mothers. It used to be associated. I think that's because we used to see older couples 
with their still with their children living with them, you know, linking arms, walking along the road. Perhaps that's why we associate it. But certainly in my experience, that's not always the case. Now, before the break, we heard comic book fan Kim Holland reflecting on supermodel Cara Delevingne's comments about superheroes and sexism. Now, basically, she said that superhero movies were totally sexist. Female superheroes were normally naked in bikinis and nobody would be able to fight like that. Uh, So we're interested in your thoughts. I mean, first of all, Kate, I mean, I would imagine you have quite a staunch view on this, really. I thought I would, too. I really, really thought I would, too. But honestly, I don't think I can I really don't I'm struggling to to find my feminist axe to grind on this one I I do kind of get the fact that it's fantasy and whilst you know I said in the interview it annoys me that they're running around in heels you couldn't possibly fight crime in I get it they're superheroes they can kind of do it in whatever Mm. You're looking at me from my viewpoint on this now, yeah, aren't you? Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm just really intrigued, actually. Some of the uh, names of superheroes that you were giving us during the break included, what, Betty Boop? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> so you can literally see that I've got no idea about this subject whatsoever. <laughs> but you've got an 11-year-old son. Surely he must... You don't read comics. He reads real books. <laughs> oh, Joe. I think you've just started a whole other debate no, there. No, that's, that's such a great big wooden spoon, isn't it? I'm more interested, though. He said, actually, that 50% of these comics are bought by women I'm really surprised by that because I really thought it was much more of a male dominated thing to buy comics but I hand on heart never read comics as a child I never ever um, yeah I never read comics and even as a parent actually when it comes to buying books I do try and get him to buy um, you know my daughter to get books that are a little bit more in depth sometimes with lighter subjects too but when you buy a book and it looks like a comic as a parent you kind of don't always want them just to read those things there needs to be a balance of but course I, I think that's actually a bit of a misconception about comics in general is that they are kind of flippant and just pictures like I I'm not hugely into comics but I have read one or two and you do get some which really are dealing with like Kim said much more kind of philosophical ideas and social ideas and yeah they're just doing it with these images as well like Viz not 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 quite like Viz <laughs> similar Joe yeah. similar um, or Private Eye like my dad used to read well our guest today is um, Laura Espinosa as I said who has just uh, brought out her own uh, children's picture book and the brilliant thing Laura when you walked in you're holding um, a notebook with who on the front (laughs) Wonder Woman and just tell me your thoughts on Wonder Woman then I absolutely love her she was one of my um, icons as a child why you know just strong powerful sexy I mean who wouldn't who wouldn't love that image and it's a great it's a great um, image to look up to you know, it's, it's just great fun. I think people take things too seriously sometimes. But do we want people looking up to the idea that you're only powerful if you can get it all out, if you can flaunt everything and that you have to be sexy or have the perfect body to be powerful? I think it shows confidence. And I think that's something that I applaud is that if somebody can wear um, like Wonder Woman, she always appealed to me as being very confident. And I watched the programme maybe and didn't w- read the comics. But um, I don't think, as you said, I think, Kate, in the interview, that she would get the same regard in maybe her jeans and her jumper. So I think that, you know, there there has to be this to get the imagination going, maybe. I think that's a bit of a shame, I do think, I'd see, maybe I'm finding my feminist axe to grind now. I think it is a bit of a shame if power and sexuality have to be so intertwined. Can I just say, I thought of somebody who is a kind of superhero who wears a turtleneck, Velma in Scooby-Doo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
I also thought it was Thelma, incidentally, but it is Velma, apparently. Um, but yeah, you know, she, has she got quite the same pull as Daphne? No, I don't think so. Sorry. You know, I um, don't particularly read um, comics. I did love Tintin, incidentally. Uh, but <laughs> when I was younger, my absolute superhero idol was She-Ra. I had the outfit <laughs> and a pretend sword made out of a kitchen roll holder. Didn't you wear that the other day into the office? Was that not what I saw you wearing? Sure. <laughs> um, but it is, it's just really interesting, isn't it? I mean, as you said, Kate, I think from um, you, you listen to Cara Delevingne's comments and you think about the, the movies and you think, oh, yeah, you know, she has got a point. But, you know, would we want to see, I don't know, think about the male superheroes. He-Man, he didn't wear very much. Tarzan. Oh, no. no, he's not a superhero, really. <laughs> well, according to Jane, he was. <laughs> <laughs> he swung from those vines. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. I can't remember what you asked either because I started thinking about Tarzan. <laughs> there you go. You see, if he was walking around with his jeans and hoodie on, you wouldn't ha- it wouldn't have the same peel. I think... I, I don't... I don't know. I want I want to be really really strong in my opinion and I just can't. On it's this. that six pack, isn't it? <laughs> oh, Joe. Okay, well let's hear some of uh, the listeners' thoughts. They may be slightly more collected. Um, Anne says uh, regarding Wonder Woman, as a young mum, I used to love seeing her. She was so pretty. Even straight women would rather look at a glam lady than a dull one, Joe, unless they are very seedy and tarty. <laughs> no, sorry, I'm sorry. Low, very low. I'm um, uh, Jim Rusty, I'm not sexist, but I like Basque's short skirts and. Uh, especially at this time of year. Thank you. Um, I totally agree. Women in graphic novels novels, are sexualised, but then so are the men, in my opinion. You never see a beer belly or balding head on Superman or Batman. It's fantasy in every aspect, says David. Very good point. Um, And uh, Colin says, I seem to recall that within the last few weeks I heard on Granada reports that Wonder Woman's features were based on a Manx woman, the artist's wife. Yes, this is absolutely true. And um, <laughs> our very own superhero fan, or James Bond fan, should I say, Alex has said, um, Daniel Craig, and in his first film, every woman he spoke to mentioned him coming out of the sea in those trunks. Oh, I, don't, I don't remember that. Thanks, as always, to our amazing guests. And as ever, it's never too late for you to get involved. Head over to Facebook, find the Women Today Facebook page, and you can comment there, or you can follow us at MRWomenToday on Twitter. And you can listen again to the full programmes on manxradio.com, or join us every weekday live from just after two o'clock. Women Today, brought to you by CityWing.com for your next flight away.